Hello, ladies. Welcome to the podcast from On She Goes, a travel site for all women of color. I'm your host, Amina Tuso. Today's episode is all about displacement. What happens when you're uprooted and traveling out of need? Fashion blogger, designer, and model Nadia Abelhosen joins us later in the episode. But to start, I wanted to talk with journalism and documentary royalty Lydia Polgreen and Candy Fight. I'm Candy Fight. I'm a freelance photographer and artist. My name is Lydia Polgreen, and I'm an editor at The New York Times. Thank you both for joining us today. So as journalists and documentarians and photographers, you have experience like uprooting and moving yourselves across the globe. What countries have you lived in? Well, I think in 2004, we moved to Senegal. And it's kind of funny, actually. When I got the assignment to be a correspondent in Senegal, this is long before I learned how to be a truly sensitive spouse. And so I said to Candy, so look, we're moving to Senegal. I'm going to go to Darfur because I got a visa to go to Sudan. Why don't you pack up our entire life and our two cats and go to Africa for the first time ever without me? Candy, how was that? It was actually kind of awesome because... When I landed with the cats, I was picked up by Joe, who is the New York Times sort of guy Friday. And I didn't speak French. I didn't speak Wolof. I didn't really, I mean, I spoke English, of course, but uh, not, like, I couldn't negotiate. I had no idea how things worked. So when we were trying to get the cats through customs, it was really challenging. <laughs> there were tears. <laughs> they kept saying, like, you need a tampon, tampon, tampon. But, you know, it's stamp. So you have to get the <laughs> Tampon? Sta- yeah. So you have to get stamped to one place, and then you have to, like, Sorry. go to another place and get a tampon, and then, like, go back and forth and get tampons. And so I was just, like, crying. And then I was like, is crying going to help? Because that is actually one thing Lydia taught me right away about traveling in the developing world is uh, cry if you think it might help you. <laughs> Wow. So, so we finally got the cats out. And then I was in Africa and I just kind of explored. And I was really, I mean, I was, guess I was just really into it. <laughs> like, it, we, I had landed right at Tabaski. And so, like, it was a very odd time to land because, you know, everything was very quiet except for these people on the street really dressed up. And I was like, what is this place? And, it, and like, it's the, that's the end of uh, Ramadan it's end season. Of, end of Ramadan. Yeah. Of course, which I didn't know nothing. I, I knew nothing about because I, I don't even know. Was Wikipedia around in 2004? <laughs> I didn't really know anything. So luckily, there was a really wonderful woman named Ophabia, who is, a, you know, like a NPR journalist, who took me under her wing, like basically literally, and like carried me from place to place the first couple of days and was like... This is Chebujen. This is how you say thank you. Like, I, I don't know. She must have thought I was actually literally an idiot. But um, she kind of paved the way. And then I was, like, completely unencumbered. So, And then I think Lydia came a couple of weeks later. And I was like, this is where you get the groceries. This is, And I was, so I was kind of like the expert, even though it really wasn't. What's the experience with the two of you traveling together? Do people Do people pick up on the fact that you're a couple? Yes. I think they must pick it up. Except they don't really know how to phrase it. So it's like always your sister, where's your sister? Sometimes they think we're the same person. Sometimes they think we're twins. I've actually gone through a customs line. I can't remember where it was, maybe Sierra Leone. 
after Lydia and they said, are you like, are you twins? Are you sisters? What your sister just came here? And I was like, no, nah, it's not my sister. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a lot of like people know that there is some kind of intimate relationship, but they're not. They don't have the vocabulary for it. I think, well, that's my thing. It's, I, it's, I mean, well, first of all, like people are going to be listening to this. I mean, like we should be clear, like Candy and I look nothing alike. Yes. I'm black. She's white. But you often wear the exact same clothes. So <laughs> I, you know, like I, I was very conflicted about like discussing this on here, but you frog and toad it a lot. So, <laughs> you know, like, do I understand why, you know, the, the man at the Dakar airport is like, your twin was just here. I'm like, I see where you're coming from, sir. Okay, look, I mean, we've been together 20 years. We're both like of similar stature. We both have sh- Dark, short, curly hair. Same, we are twins. <laughs> we're twins. Oh my god, maybe we are twins. So I Awkward. thought, I thought that this was like just a like overseas phenomenon that people in the developing world would think that we were twins. But we were actually on a road trip in California because I'd actually never been to California until like 2009, which I know is kind of crazy. That's but insane. <laughs> I, but you know, like I grew up mostly in Africa, sure. and like I'd never really traveled in the United States. So in between assignments, uh, I was we were going for West Africa. Africa to, to India, I was like, let's let's do a road trip in the West because I'd never been to California. So we were at a steakhouse in, was it like Stockton, California Didn't or know. something like that? And the waitress at the steakhouse was like, can I ask you a question? <laughs> <laughs> Are y'all twins? <laughs> what do you say? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny DeVito. <laughs> That's, basically, That's basically the twins we are. I mean, they stop dressing the same. Oh my god! Twenty years, twenty years—it's a long time. Listen, Things blend. I, know. I, I support it. I, I support it so much. But, I you just know. get dressed first. I don't know what happens after I get dressed. I mean, also like just to like you know be real for a minute here. We've spent a lot of time traveling in places where same-sex relationships are like super, super not cool, right? Yeah. You know, I think if we were two men, it might have been even harder. But I think we've always had to be really careful and discreet. And as people who've like our entire adult lives been, you know, totally out and proud, it it is a little weird to, you know, be in a situation where you're not sure if it's safe to be completely open about who you are. So that's something that we definitely contended with. I mean, when we when we lived in India, for example, all my other colleagues, their spouses had spouse visas and Candy couldn't have a spouse visa. And that was, you know, kind of weird. So let me recap. Mm. You So you lived in Senegal. You lived in India for work. You also lived in South Africa. Yes. yes. What's the process of, like, going about making new friends? It's like, are you mm. even interested in making friends when you're living in these new places? That's a good question. You're, you're like, all of my, like, social needs are taken care of. <laughs> well, I mean, I really, really like Lydia a lot. And I think the same is true for her. But, you know, we do need friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> Do you, though? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, we need friends. But I think so. But, you know, it's so funny. Like, I had such a um, – so I kind of lived the expat life as a kid, right? Like, my mother's from Ethiopia. My father's American. We moved to Kenya when I was four. And I was, like, in Ghana all through my high school years. And so I had, like, a really up-close and personal look at, like, what the expat life was all about. And some real ambivalence about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um my general sense was that people who are long-term expats were 
often people who like were trying to run away from something back home or like trying to escape certain expectations or bonds. And uh, over time, I, I, I sort of came to feel that there's this kind of disfiguring quality to long-term expat life. I don't know why this comes up in the context of friendships, but I think that's a part of it. I mean, we made so many amazing friends over the years, but it's always so ephemeral, you know, yeah. like you're in a place for a few years and then you pick up and you move. The nice thing is now we live in New York City and everybody comes to New York City. But part of the reason that we moved back, I think, was we got to the point where everyone we loved was who was our age and we're both 40 – um, you know, when we first went abroad, everybody was like, oh, my God, I'll totally come visit you in Senegal. I'll totally come visit you in India. And, like, we had all these great adventures with our friends from back in the States. But then they all had kids. And it's like, I'm not going to bring my, like, eight-month-old baby to India. It's like you know, 17 shots you can give your baby. Exactly. <laughs> Get on this plane to come visit me. I was like, there are so many babies here. You and so we bring yours. I know. It's like, it'd be like, there are plenty of babies in India. Trust me. But I think, like, I think we just sort of realized that if we wanted to be, like, really knitted into the fabric of people's lives, that we have to be present. So it seemed like a good time to, to come back. That said, like, we have so many amazing friends all around the world. And that is one of the benefits of, of that life, you know, is just, I don't know, like, you meet crazy, cool people. Yeah, that's how I feel. I'm always, like, whenever I'm thinking about going somewhere, I, like, look at a country on a map. I'm like, I know somebody here, 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 right. you know? And even if you don't know them very well, I'm like, I know them well enough that, like, I know that we will create a friendship when we're there. Exactly. Because we're just people who go places. <laughs> No, totally. And also, I think we were really, really, well, I feel it particularly like I was in a hugely advantageous situation because a place like India, you're such a kind of an oddity. You have this access to society that you would never really have access to any other place. Like you, you're hanging out with you know hugely interesting intellectual communities, art communities who you kind of would maybe not have access to. Otherwise, if you weren't coming from abroad. I don't think we've ever had as, you know, kind of varied and crazy a circle of acquaintance as we did when we lived in Delhi. Delhi is a great dinner party town, you know. But the thing is, you show up at like 7 and you start drinking whiskey. And then like at 1130, the food is served and you're like ready to pass out. And as soon as everybody's eaten, they leave immediately. So like they don't serve food until like the very, very end of the night, because like otherwise everyone will just leave when the food's over. <laughs> but by that time, like you've like literally been like eating like little salty snacks and drinking whiskey for like five hours. So you're like ready to die. But you're also really happy that the food's there. That's great. Lydia, I'm asking you this question because Candy and I had a misunderstanding about a uh, how she's a person of flavor <laughs> as opposed to a person of color. Um, can you tell me about the experience of being a, a black person in Africa, living in sub-Saharan Africa, but also being an American? Oh, my God. It's such an interesting experience. You know, I mean, God, where to begin? Because that's like that's been my life story, essentially. You know, like we moved to Kenya when I was four and you're always somehow apart, you know, like you're black, I guess in my case I'm biracial, but of course I consider myself to be black, but everyone instantly knows that like you're not of their place. It's like the way you dress, it's the way you carry yourself, the way you talk. Um, so being black in Africa, being a black American in Africa is really, really strange. You're like, hey, like we're, you're my, you're my homie, like we're, we're like peeps together and like they're like, I don't, I don't know you. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> you have a twin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about. Like, I see her. <laughs> You're not with us. Um, 
But it's funny because, like, I think that that permanent outsider status, which has been basically my whole life story, is part of what made me a journalist. I've always felt like as a woman who's often in male spaces, very much an outsider, as a queer person, very much an outsider, you know. But I feel like that's what's allowed me to pretty shamelessly insert myself into any situation and feel, like, pretty comfortable with it and just be like, hey, this is me. I'm going to ask you some questions. And also, like, I don't know, maybe because of my complexion or the texture of my hair or whatever, people always think I'm from somewhere else. They're like, oh, are you Brazilian? Oh, are you Algerian? Or, you know, and then there were some people in India who, like, would maybe think I was from some weird part of India they'd never been to because it's, like, such a big and diverse country. They're like, sure, there could be a part of India where people look like you. I mean, why not? So it's a it's kind of a funny thing. And Candy, what about you being a person of flavor, not of color, but like still living in Africa? Like, how did that feel? Oh, wow. Well, living in Africa, I mean, of course, Africa being a big place. It's not a country. (laughs) (laughs) So we're clear. Um, I, you know, I absolutely loved living in Africa, both in Senegal and in South Africa, and for very different reasons in both places. But especially West Africa, I even find this to be the case in in, um, in New York, in Harlem, where we live. It takes so little. As a white person, it takes so little. If you know, hello, how are you? You know, how's your family? What's your name in Wolof or any, you know, even in French, um, but mostly in Wolof? It's like, oh, I'm fine. It's like you're, you know, you're instantly sort of embraced, at least, you know, sort of socially. You know, people are very open and kind once you start to try to connect with them. And I think that, like, you know, being a a foreigner, being of flavor, maybe not of color, um, really helped that in a way. I mean, obviously, it couldn't be anything else. So I kind of think it was advantageous or kind of broke down some barriers. But it just it takes so little for the white person to make friends in Africa. Like, I don't even know how to say it in a, like a more politically correct way. Like, <laughs> like people, you walk down the street. I would it's walk like down the street. You say Nangadef, and yeah, everybody is in love like, with you. Oh my God, you speak Wolof? Yeah, no, You're I don't like, speak. I know Wolof. the one word. I know, like, I know how to say, you know, Nudem. Like, go play, you know, go someplace or like, but you know, it takes so little. So I was as a lazy person and as a person of white skin and as a foreigner, I I uh, had a fantastic experience. <laughs> she totally cleaned up. <laughs> I cleaned up. I had so many, fr- but it was just, you know, the idea of kind of walking down the street and people knowing instantly that you don't belong there, I think in one sense can be really alienating, right? Because you don't belong there. But in, in another sense, the times, and it hopefully was the majority of the time when I was able to be kind of open to the experience and and put some effort in, um, was really really rewarding. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank what you a treat! So much. Thank you. Those are my very dear friends, Candy Fight and Lydia Polgreen. Just a note: we recorded that interview when Lydia was still at the Times. She's now editor in chief at the Huffington Post. No big deal. To check out more from Candy and Lydia's adventures, go to onshegoes.com. You met the fabulous Melissa Valle in our first episode. She's now enhancing our travels with the three H's. Each and every episode, she'll give us tips on how to handle either hair, health, or harassment while abroad. Here is Melissa. Let's talk about hair. In some countries like Brazil, it costs a lot of money to heat the water, which means spending a ton of time in the shower going through your regular natural hair conditioning regimen is not feasible. Be aware that cold washing may become a part of your routine. 
If there happens to be a water shortage, you might not even be able to do that. Have a hair backup plan, like a head wrap or a spray bottle that you keep filled to make sure that you, you know, you stay looking flawless on your trip. For more hair tips from our very own natural beauty jet setter, Melissa Valle, go to onshegoes.com. My next guest is a true Instagram inspiration. My name is Nadia Abelhassan. I'm a fashion blogger, a designer, and a model. Despite her fear of flying, Nadia travels constantly for work. We get into that later, but first, I wanted to know more about her experience visiting Syrian refugees in Lebanon and what inspired her to go. I mean, I've, I've always wanted to go as a kid because my father's Lebanese, but the thing I love about social media is that you're able to see and hear news that you wouldn't necessarily hear, like on Fox News or CNN, so... I wanted to make it a point myself to see what was happening because it was such a huge world crisis that nobody was really talking about because the media is so used to dehumanizing people who aren't basically white. So <laughs> I went over there myself to try to get an idea and, and just met a, a bunch of different refugees, families, women, children, saw different schools, and um, just sort of wanted to bring awareness to something that was close to me. Mentally and emotionally, like, how were you preparing for the trip? Because... I don't know, like working in refugee camps or even just going to see them, is it's really heavy. Yeah, I mean, I went for two weeks and I spent, you know, the majority of time with them and seeing different camps. But I mean, I don't think there is any way you can mentally prepare yourself for it. So, I mean, when I went there, the aid people you go with, they tell you, you know, you can't get emotional because they already know they have a bad situation right now, but they're going to feel even worse. So it's like you kind of have to put on the strong face for them to kind of give them hope, to think positive and to thinking things are going to change for the better. So I just remember getting back to the hotel room and like as soon as I opened up my door to my hotel room and shut it, I just started bawling my eyes out. You know, the first thing I did was get on my computer and just type out like a huge like essay of just everything I was feeling and like you feel so privileged. Like I remember at the time I was about to get evicted from my apartment in New York that I was living in, and I thought I was going through, like, the worst time ever and this and that because I couldn't afford rent. Well, these people are going through 20 times worse than my worst. So it's like my worst doesn't become bad anymore, and it kind of just puts things into perspective for you. You know, you're so small in this world, and your issues that you think are big really aren't. So I just kind of was really grateful. Did you have to dress, like, fairly conservatively, and what was in your suitcase? I definitely am not in, like, a thong bodysuit like I am on my Instagram. But (laughs) (laughs) when I was a teenager, I would go to the mosque all the time and everything. But my family isn't really conservative. And um, Lebanon is basically half Christian, half Muslim. So, no, in Beirut, honestly, when I was there the whole time, I would just wear jeans and a T-shirt. My my luggage was sneakers, jeans, and a T-shirt. I knew I was going there. model off-duty uniform? I'm always (laughs) off-duty. <laughs> I wish you could see my outfit right now. I'm going to the gym after this. I have like leggings on and a and a black V-neck and sneakers. Yeah, it was just sneakers, jeans, and a t-shirt because I knew going over there that my main mission was for refugees. It wasn't to like party and all that. I, I think I had one dress. That's what I did. I had one dress and one night I took like I wrote on my Instagram like, um, if you're in Lebanon. I'll take, like, five of my followers out to dinner. So I, I met with five of my followers. Oh, that's and took cool. Them out to yeah, so I had one red dress, and that's what we did. So this was your first trip to Lebanon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's something really powerful about, like, especially when you're a minority in America, about going back to 
you know, like, if you have a homeland, going back there and walking around and realizing that you are the majority there. Yeah. Everybody looks like you. Everybody talks like you. Everybody has your last name. Listen, I always think I'm so exotic in America. I'm like, oh, I got thick eyebrows. Like, you know, I'm curvy and dark hair and this and that. And then I went over there and I'm like, well, I'm not shit. Because everybody looks good. Or, <laughs> I was like, everybody looks good or better than me. You know what I mean? Like, everybody over here has big butts and big eyebrows and high cheekbones. So I'm just basic Right. Over it's here. like all of the defining characteristics <laughs> of who you are are in the majority. So, you know, I guess my next question there is that, like, how has being a Lebanese-American really shaped your identity or your career? You know what's crazy is I didn't—when I grew up, I didn't think of myself as, like, different or an outcast because I grew up with minorities, so it wasn't me feeling different ever. It wasn't until I got into this fashion industry and was a part of the media, basically, that I started feeling like I was kind of different. And especially when I started traveling more, I guess after 9-11, everything got a lot more difficult and security issues when I travel overseas are, are a problem sometimes, but... um. Really? Do you have a lot of do you have a lot of TSA and security issues when you travel? All the damn time. How much are you traveling for work, like on average? Like a lot, right? Yeah. I mean, all the time I would fly four or five times to different places. Just last month I was in LA, then I went to Montreal, and then from Montreal to New York, and then New York down to Florida, and then Florida back to it's like a literally a circle around the United States. <laughs> Jet setter. What's on your travel playlist? I'm obsessed with how much you like Drake. <laughs> So I'm hoping to hear a lot of that. <laughs> when um, Views came out and Life of Pablo came out, it's all I will play for like two months straight. And whenever I want to get in like my creative circle type thing, my creative mode, that's what I listen to. I like Kanye Champions. I listen to Gucci Man a lot. Old 90s R&B is always good for me. I really like Ray Schmurda Look Alive. Like, I play that at the gym all the time when I'm there. That's my that's my travel jam. Is it? It's the only thing that calms me down before. So I have serious anxiety about flying. So I have like a, <laughs> I have a very neurotic playlist. But no. it has to go in the order that I want. And then <laughs> that song, it's five times in a row because that's how long usually it'll take from taxiing to oh my gosh. <laughs> plane takes off. And it's like, it's a human Xanax. It's perfect. I know. I'm just as terrified as fly- of flying. Like, believe it or not, I've become worse. So I assume you stay in a lot of like super nice hotels for these business trips. My room service is insane, though. Oh, my God. Tell us about room service. Let me say something. I already have to travel, so I'm out of my little comfort zone of my room. So then I just like... Don't want to leave. Everybody's like, oh, you're in another in a new country, you know. Um, why don't you go explore? I'm like, or I could stay in my room and order room service. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I do all the time. Like, I'll be in London, and everybody's like, oh, let's go out tonight. And I'll be like, oh, but I see the way my room service is set up, that I had to be inside <laughs> the room to get it. So, What do you like to get? Like, what's the, like, Nadia, like, room service special? The number one thing I get anywhere, chicken tenders and french fries. They have chicken tenders outside of America? Like, you uh, can get that on room service? Yes, yes. You're blowing my mind right now. I know. They have—it's, like, universal everywhere. Chicken and french fries, no matter where you go, is going to be good or decent. You know what I mean? Nadia, thank you so, so, so much for joining us. This was a delight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. You know, I'm going to actually name my kid Amina one day when I have her. Yes. It's like literally. I'll tell everybody, I'll tell everybody you named her after, <laughs> after me <you? laughs> after we did this podcast. That's, trust me, that's the lie I'm going to tell everybody I know.
That was beautiful human being Nadia Abulhosen. You can check out her rad clothing line on Instagram by Nadia Abulhosen. And if you want Nadia's exclusive travel throwbacks and tips, head to onshegoes.com. It's time to go around the world with Anaya. This week I'm talking about Kauai, Hawaii. Off the beaten path of the typical tourist haunts of Waikiki and Maui, when you ask Hawaiians what their favorite island is, you'll often hear Kauai. It's awesome to go off the grid here while still being in the U.S., and on this island whose wild chickens outnumber people, there's no telling what could happen. Here are three things you have to do while there. Spend your days chasing waterfalls and hiking those beautiful dramatic landscapes that you might remember from films like The Descendants or Jurassic World. One of my favorite falls was Walua. It's about a 20-minute hike once you get out of the car, and damn, it's breathtaking. Have a puka dog. So, these are pretty much hot dogs slash pigs in a blanket hybrids. Veggie's an option too, with a Hawaiian twist. Think fruit relishes and sweet and tangy sauces. Trust me, you won't regret it. If there's any place to splurge on a helicopter ride, it would definitely be Kauai. The area views of the waterfalls or the Nepali coastline where red and green cliffs jut into the aqua water are just phenomenal. I took blue Hawaiian helicopters. Another fun way to see some parts of the island airily is through a zipline tour. The views of old sugar mills, wildflower fields, and lakes from what I saw on my tour with Kaloa zipline were absolutely spectacular. Thanks, Anaya. And that's it for this episode of On She Goes. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to check out onshegoes.com for more travel stories, tips, and inspiration. I'm your host, Aminatu So. On She Goes is produced by me and Barry Finkel for Pineapple Street Media in partnership with Sarita Wesley, Lizzie Harris, and Natalie Huzenga for Wyden and Kennedy Publishing. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, Emily Becker, Lindsay Mavis, Sarah Fink, Marmoset, and APM. Bye.